stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Veronica Gonzalez-Pena, is a novelist, filmmaker, editor, and founder of Rocky Point Press, a series of artist-writer collaborations. Her first novel, Twin Time or How Death Befell Me, won the 2007 Aslan Prize for Emerging Chicano Writers. Her work has also appeared in Black Clock, Animal Shelter, The Mississippi Review, and New World Young Latino Writers. Veronica Gonzalez-Pena is here today on Between the Covers to talk about The Sad Passions, her new novel from Semiotext. Set in the Mexico City of the 1960s and 70s, The Sad Passions is told by six women narrators who circle the mystery of family, love, and madness. The Los Angeles Review of Books describes it as follows. The Sad Passions explodes the tired assumption that women's interiority is intrinsically domestic. It fans out women's inner lives like the vibrant sections of a peacock's tail, upending our expectations of a novel about women's family life. The cumulative effect is a hall of mirrors, an intimate, personal hall of mirrors, a psychic hall of mirrors. This, she tells us, is where women live, how women live, in the company of past selves, future selves, in the anguished haunting of possible selves. Welcome to Between the Covers, Veronica Gonzalez-Pena. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. The Sad Passions is the story of one family told by six members of it. Can, can you introduce us a little bit to the, the family that you, you explore in, in The Sad Passions? Uh, I guess the, the place that it all fans out from would be um, Claudia. She's the mother in this story, and uh, she's mad, so the girls, uh, her daughters, the other characters don't, don't know it when they're growing up. They, they, are just, they live in, a, in the turmoil of, um, of the fanning out of her own psychic reality. The other characters are, four of them are her daughters, uh, Rocio, who is the oldest daughter, and she, she's probably a typical o- oldest child. She's the one that wants to fix things and um, and and mend, and that sees all the breakage, while at the same time being uh, very vague and unsure in herself and and in what she's seeing. So she falls in and out of an incredible lucidity, which. Uh, through which we follow her, and um, we ourselves, when we're with Rocio, seem to go in and out of that lucidity. The next uh, daughter is Julia, and Julia um, gets given away when she's seven years old, almost seven years old, and she goes to live with an uncle in the United States and becomes an art historian. 
Julia, Julia's perspective of, of this family is quite different from the other girls because she's grown up um, in a different world. She's incredibly sensitive and um, very internal. Her sections, I would say, are the most internal in the book. The next daughter is Marta, and Marta is really the wild one. Um, it's surprising to me, but Marta is the character that, that most people want to know more about. Um, she's uh, she's extravagant in many ways in, in her selfness, and she's the person that spills out um, and 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 maybe writes um, and is written by her her mother's madness most clearly. She reacts in in violent ways and is reacted upon in violent ways, I would say. The youngest daughter is Sandra, and Sandra is a poet, although she's not quite aware of it yet. She's really um, has a different kind of lucidity than, than Rocio. Um, she... She moves through the world in a, in a magical way and understands things at a, at a kind of a magical level um, and feels uh, the closest connection with her sister, Julia, who has been given away. She's also something of an amateur historian, so it's through her that we really get to see Mexico City and to understand some of the layering of history that, that we get um, from the book. The last voice, which only appears once in the book, these are all first-person narratives, by the way, and they're all quite interwoven. Um, the last voice is uh, Claudia's sister, so the aunt of these other characters. And she appears once very briefly toward the center of the book, and she's a character who turns everything upside down for us, I think. We've been getting this series of narratives and this very strong voice, um, which is Claudia's voice, and she comes in and turns everything that Claudia has said upside down for us so that we we doubt and have to rethink everything that's come before and perhaps see everything that comes after she appears a little bit differently. We start um, reading the book differently because of, because of her presence, I think. Um, she's quite a, a, an important character, even though she only appears for that tiny little section. And when you discuss the uh, undercutting of of one person's narrative by another, it brings up the issue of the choices you made around the structure of the book to not tell it in a linear uh, narrative style, but to to s- sort of circle around the the mysteries of the family from various perspectives. And I, I, I would love to hear more about that choice and how you feel like it informs um, the project that you're doing with the Sad Passions. Well, I'm, I'm incredibly interested in point of view, and um, this book would have been very, very easy or, or much easier to tell um, if, if it were a, a kind of a close third-person uh, rendition of these people's lives. Um, and, and I had a moment where somebody suggested that I do that, and I, and I had a moment of thinking that I would just because that's a much easier voice for me to play with. I mean, it was actually uh, one of my editors at Semiotax, Teddy L. Colty, who's a very important person to me and, 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 and to my writing who who said that, that no, that I should always push myself. And I knew that this would be difficult, but I knew that it would be the thing that would challenge me as a writer. So it's these, um, these essentially five first-person narrations with the sixth one appearing once. And they, and, and they are quite interwoven. And one of the things that, um, that I, I love about that kind of structure is that 
it allows for this deferred understanding. It allows for things to unfold for the reader in the way that things unfold for a consciousness, in the way that things unfold for me in my life or for you in your life, where um, you will see something differently because of something that has occurred later. So it's it's uh, this idea of deferred understanding. And which is a kind of a Freudian psychoanalytic idea that that new information or a new bit of of um, of occur some new occurrence will will turn everything that you think you know upside down and and I think that for a work of art that's a very kind of um, it's a difficult place for a reader because you never quite know where your footing is but I also feel like it's an ex- extremely exciting place for a reader because you are in process as as you're reading the book everything um everything is constantly electric and happening and and becoming unraveled as it's raveling uh, and i think that um for me the experience of telling that way has very much to do with my relationship to the reader and my desire that the reader be involved in that kind of um internal psychic kind of motion it's also a great match for that feeling as a child of not having all the information and trying to figure out what's going on, which I think would be true in any family, but it's particularly true in this one when you have a, a mentally ill mother who is sometimes very there, but erratically so, and sometimes very absent. But the same thing with the father who's... who's um, Unpredictable. Like, is he? Sometimes he appears, and sometimes he disappears. And then the mystery, the central mystery, this of why the mother gave away one of her children, and which, of course, is something that's haunting all of the children in the family about this alternate reality. Yeah, most of the book is is these memories, these childhood memories, these memories that these girls have. So the perspective is this childlike kind of, um, uh, very kind of vague and diffuse uh, relationship to to knowledge and to information that we do have when we're children but but i i think that we have that relationship to knowledge um throughout our lives there's there's always um that kind of thing is constantly happening to us. I think we feel it most acutely when we're children, but I, I as an adult am constantly re understanding things or or um gaining a different perspective on something that I thought I knew. And I think that that, for me, that is um, so closely related to this idea of process and motion and and the flow of understanding in life, which um, I take up. And I think that's really the central central kind of uh, drive in in all of my work is is to... think about about process and motion and and to create it in a narrative um, in a way that a that a reader falls into that space where it's almost immersive that that sense of process well claudia the the mother who is mentally ill you mentioned her the one chapter that's narrated by her sister is really undercutting and the her narrative but it, but also I want to. I would be interested to hear you talk about your considerations about portraying mental illness. I, I felt like the choices you made around narration, about giving her a voice in the book rather than just having it told by the children, was was also crucial because we get the children uh, mystified by her behavior, uh, confused, and yet we, when we hear her narrate, she's a very different person 
than what we experience from people observing her from the outside. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that also undercuts narrative too, in Mm -hmm. in an interesting way, because Mm -hmm. we get, we, we, you give her, uh, her humanity in those sections when she's speaking. And I, I wondered if there was any trepidation or concern around how to portray the, the, the mental illness in, in a, in an appropriate way in the book. That, those sections, I have to say, were um, incredibly difficult for me to write. They were extremely draining. The book as a whole was very, very um, difficult because it's so internal, and I had to kind of occupy these different voices. But it was very difficult for me to do to do that voice. Um, I, I know people who are mentally ill quite intimately, and um, and it did feel like a big responsibility. And, and I wanted to make sure that um, my portrayal was an empathic, open, um, uh, loving portrayal overall. Um, I, 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 I'm not really sure how I, um, how I stumbled upon, upon the technique which ended up working for me, which is that she starts out, her sections generally start out fairly lucid, and, and then um, she gets herself into these rhythms uh, that kind of take control of her, like the rhythm of her language and the rhythm of her unraveling becomes bigger than her selfness by the end of her chapters. And and I think that from my experience of people who, who have the illness that, that uh, Claudia is meant to have, I... I see that happening uh, in just general conversations where a conversation can start in one place and you think that it, that things are are one thing and and by the end of of a even a small conversation things can unravel and once they start unraveling it happens very very quickly and it just kind of uh, plummets from there. Uh so I think that that that, that for me was um was at least something that I could hang myself on as I was writing these sections. I needed something because it was very difficult and quite draining, as I say. But but overall, I felt like I had to give her a voice, and I wanted I wanted to give her. I didn't want to uh, whitewash anything, but I wanted to give her her humanity and and and, and give an empathic view of of what her interiority might be like and the terror that she herself feels in the face of of the unraveling. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today to writer Veronica Gonzalez Pena about her novel, The Sad Passions. You, you've said in another interview, Veronica, that. The phenomenon of the nuclear family wasn't something prominent in Mexico in the 60s and 70s, and that this more fluid, shifting definition of of family you saw as more forgiving, like creating more room for mistakes and for variant personalities, and consequently also that the concept of of madness was more fluid in in Mexico at that time period. Could could you talk a little bit more about that and? how it informs uh, the choices you make about the portrayal of this family? Yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know that it's consequent that that mental illness was seen differently because of these kinds of family structures. What what I do know is that um, these family structures were more forgiving uh, or are more forgiving in terms of a person's mental illness. There's a larger web, and, and that web is there for everything. There's just a larger web of 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 to hold any individual up. Um, I think that the, the the idea of a nuclear family it puts an awful lot of pressure on all of the people within that unit. Um, 
the parents have to be everything to the children and the children have to be everything to the parents. And in a, in this, these kind of larger structures, there's a lot more room for mistakes. There, there are three or four different models of what it is to be a woman in a household where their aunts and grandmother are, are present or what to be a man when the uncles are present or what a father might look like when these people, all of these different people are present. And um, there's a lot more places for a child to move through and between. And uh, the fluidity that it allows, I think, is, is quite forgiving and, and quite beautiful. I think that the way that that affects these these this this thing which will come into illness is that it, it allows for a, a lot more places for that for that to kind of go and and, and be held. Strict kind of uh, characterizations and graphings and, and and institutionalizing of 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 all of these things it's just not a part of that culture in the way that it is here there are things that are um there are negative sides to it i'm not being pollyannaish about it at all but i think that it is generally more forgiving for the person that that has the illness and certainly in this family it, there are many generations who are raised by someone other than their parents. Yeah. So Claudia is, and then also uh, she gives away one of her children to be raised by someone else in the family as well. Yeah. Yeah. But, but she's being raised by someone in the family, which happens a lot in, in, in Latin America, my Latin American and, and Asian friends actually kind of understand that kind of structure that, that an aunt or uncle would take a child in. It's not surprising to them in the, in the way that, um, my other friends are kind of shocked by, um, because of these larger family structures that are that are prevalent in both of those cultures, I think. Well, let's uh, have our listeners hear a little bit of the prose from the sad passions. Okay. So I'm going to read from uh, Julia's section. This is a Julia, who is the daughter who has been given away. And as I said, uh, all of the sections are first person narrations. So this is from her point of view. And each chapter um, is just headed with the person's name. So I'll just read a couple pages of Julia. This is the first time she speaks, by the way. Julia, it's not to say that things were always terrible. They weren't. Most of the time they weren't, and I was happy. Lots of people around me, aunts and cousins and friends, my grandmother. We would eat together often, all of us, big meals prepared by the housekeeper. My grandmother, the sole adult in that house, really, her children all still in their twenties and continually rushing back to her home after the always futile attempt of a few months out on their own worked her job at the National Palace, so was gone most of the day every day, and on weekends loved to play cards, poker for small change, her glasses on, deep concentration, a cigarette in her mouth, three fingers tapping, everything flowing in and out of her, and she herself focused on her hand. So that every week there was a parade of folks streaming through the house, old people mostly, but often with children or grandchildren in tow, so that they weren't always uninteresting to us, those card games." My grandmother laughing and joking and sipping wine or coffee and picking at olives or nuts or dried fruit which somebody had brought. We would play too sometimes, piles of change in front of us, scheming, trying our hardest to cheat, never really knowing if they were letting us win or not. These nights were for staying up late, for running in groups through the house and all of its secret insides. 
the rooms of our uncles and aunt, full of candles and little bottles holding tonics and perfumes and dark-colored paintings and drawers stuffed with treasures which we dared to open only once or twice. And then we'd go outside, to the little enclosed garden which transformed into dim, unpredictable wilderness in the dark of night, the bunch of us planning and hiding and spying, peeking through windows, trying to get at hints of what was what it was that drove the adults' unpredictable lives. Sometimes a group of my estranged father's friends would show up for those card games too, though he was rarely with them, and they were thrilling to us, young and handsome like he was, in skinny black suits and thin ties, and even back then we could tell they were serious in their gambling, though in my grandmother's presence, out of respect for her, they held back. There was one, he was tall and had light-colored hair, was often in the center, the others orbiting around him, and this one would occasionally send gifts meant only for me, not for my sisters, but for me. And we never thought to question the apparent injustice of this. We were used to inequality, though for a long time it remained fuzzily unclear. It wouldn't be until I was older, thirteen or so, that I would come to understand what was driving those visits, driving those just-for-me gifts. You mentioned in this reading the estranged father and his friends who sometimes pop into the narrative and then disappear again. Tell us about the choice and the sad passions to narrate it exclusively from the female perspective, why you made that choice, and and the effect you were going for by really foregrounding uh, female narrative and having the men be more peripheral or marginal to it? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm very much into um, female narratives. I'm very shaped by women writers and uh, women's interiority. Um, and I, I think that well, Mexico is, is quite uh, matriarchal, even though if, uh, it doesn't look like it. The men are also macho and, you know, um, present in this in this kind of large way. But but at least in the home, what what happens in the homes is very very um, centered on women, and so because this is largely. Um, a book about that kind of about interiority and about that space, the space of the home. That that's what comes out. But the men actually write a lot of this story, even though they're not present. So the grandfather, who is not present very often, much of much of what happens is written by the fact that he leaves, that he abandons his family and goes off to live with another woman, and um, leaves the grandmother kind of to 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 pull everything together and to struggle along. And the same happens in in Claudia's life, where the the husband is not not present, um, but he very much writes himself upon her and the girl's lives. He's the first person that takes her to have electroshock therapy. He, he's, very, he's very present, but is only told through these perspectives, mm -hmm. I think. And, and I, li I, I like the fact that I've written a book that is all women, um, and that, um, that it's these very um, varied and various uh, perspectives of what it is to be a woman. Yeah. I, I really like the effect too. And, and it's interesting. I feel like in the last third of the sad passions, e even though we continue to have the narration by women, we start to get more of an understanding of the men. And I, I, I was 
I liked that effect of specifically the chapter when Julia narrates as if from the perspective of her father, which I found very moving. And um, then we also start to learn about the mysterious other lives of Uncle Felix and his past around making art. And we learn about uh, the father of the uh, of the sisters or the daughters who lives now in Veracruz and and also about first sexual experiences. And all this starts to amass in the last third of the book about confronting men and maleness, but you've already established this very strong center of gravity around the female narrative and interiority before we go there. It's yeah. it's a very interesting move that the sad passions makes, I think. Oh, th- yeah, thank you. Um that 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 section where uh, uh, Julia um speaks as if from the voice of her of who she finds out is her biological father. It starts out with those incredible images by Hans Bellmer and with her talking about Hans Bellmer too. Um so so that kind of uh the male's action upon the females, the way the way that the male um, can act upon upon the female uh, begins the that whole section, and then it's interesting because that gets turned upside down when she speaks from the point of view of the of the man. So she 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 takes what Belmer's done basically and turns it upside down and speaks speaks for the man. Um, for our listeners who might not be familiar with him with his art with Hans Belmer with Hans Belmer, can you could you maybe touch a little bit on? what purpose he's playing in the narrative and his Julia's relationship to his, to his art. Yeah, I guess I, 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 this gives me the opportunity to just um, say a little bit about the images that I use in, in the book that uh, my, um, my decision to use images in the book came quite late in the process. I had already, I felt I was done with the book um, and was about to hand it in when it hit me that, that there might be a lot of people that wouldn't, wouldn't pick up on the references to the different artists. And so in Julia's section, I include some of the artists that she, that she's speaking about. I include images from them. And generally um, in the earlier sections, there's several artists, but in the later sections, she concentrates on, on one artist for each chapter. And the first one is Hans Bellmer and the second is Francesca Woodman. She, she does an essay about each of these artists. So you, you get, you get some of the background in the book, but Hans Bellmer was an um, artist practicing um, before uh, uh, um, the second world war. And he made these puppets. Uh, they're images that we are all quite familiar with now, but that were quite shocking at the time, I think. Um, he made these uh, life-size puppets um, that were these female puppets, and they're they're quite um, mutilated female puppets, and he has them sometimes partially dressed, but always in these very enticing kind of um, sexual ways. He he has puppets with no limbs. He has puppets with uh, a dual vaginas where the head is a vagina um, with legs coming out of it. He has puppets that he hangs um, from trees so that they're like uh, either suicided or murdered. They're they're incredibly disturbing um, pu- uh, Um and, and one of the things that I think is the creepiest thing for me in, in watching them is his own presence in the background, often blurry and, and observing his creations. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, I mean, I used those images. I use a couple of images where he's, he's present once um, 
hidden behind a tree and another time as this kind of spectral image in this um, double exposure. And it was important for me, especially in that section, which is all about fathers, to have, he's essentially the father of these puppets, and to have him present at the mangling dismemberment and suicide of all of these different women, um, these different women puppets that he creates, that the father may be writing these events upon the bodies of his creation. Uh, It's thematically um, written into the book. It it just fit perfectly for what I was doing. And and can you talk about the theme of of ghost fathers in The Sad Passions, which this sort of resonates off Mm -hmm. of the larger theme of the the ghostliness of, of, of the men in the book, really? Well, I, I, I think um, we just spoke about it a little bit, that these fathers are, are there and not there. And the, the book is largely about absence. And Julia is, it's clear for us that Julia is that. She's the one who is and is not there. Her voice is very strong. She's uh, the, the person that we as a reader probably relate to most closely because she's intellectual. She's uh, very subtle. She's very sensitive, like all of us readers are. So we identify with her, but she's she's also the person that, that isn't there, and she's the pers- the site of a lot of the, the anxiety and tension for that family. She's really, um, there's a, a, a point where Sandra calls her the stain. She's the stain for the rest of the family. She's the thing that they're trying to make up for, that they're trying to contend with. And uh, that's a clear absence, the story of Julia. But there's a secondary absence, which is the absence of all of the men in these lives. They, they, they're, they end up being these ghost fathers. And I think one of the things that, that is interesting to me about absence is um, how present and how, how we get written by absence, how really present absence is. That absence isn't, um, isn't the, the lack the um, lack of the existence of something. It's the lack of the thing that w- that we that we want or that we long for, and that's very clear in this book. That that the absence is the thing that um, creates this unfillable void and this and this huge longing, which I think the book conveys quite well by the end of of, of it. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today to writer Veronica Gonzalez-Pena about her novel, The Sad Passions. Well, that, that idea of there and not there is also brought out with the repeating motif of doppelgangers or twinning. We have Julia, who's given away, but then we have Sandra, who opens the book, who feels haunted by Julia's absence, they look a lot alike each, like each other. And she feels weirdly like she's replaced her in the family system in some, in some strange way. But we also have Claudia, the mother's story of her father and him being in love when he was a kid with one of two twins who dies in a, in a house fire. And then he goes on to only love one of his daughters. And similarly, we have the story of the hummingbirds where two hummingbirds hit the pain, a window pain, and one gets up and flies away and the other one dies. Yeah. It reminds me of a very, like a, a feminine version of the, all of those biblical stories, yeah. you know, Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Ishmael, yeah. uh, Abel and Cain. Yeah. Uh, and I, it's very fascinating, the the twinning aspect of the sad passions. Can you talk a little bit more about, about that, the doppelganger aspect of the book? Well, I'm clearly fascinated by twins. My, my, my first book is called Twin Time. Um, 
uh, I, I think that that that, that doubling. Um, it's it's fascinating because doubling can never really be doubling, right? Um, it, it's the thing that that approaches, but that can never be. And so there's um, there's all of this this work to approach um, and to and to attempt to make an attempt at something that can't that can't ever quite be what it's attempting to be. And so for Sandra in the book. We know they look alike. We know they look more alike than than any of the other sisters, she and Julia. But we're not quite sure they look that much alike. Um, it could just be Sandra's seeing it that way, her need and her desire to see to see it that way. And um, again, we get it very deeply into the psychology of the character who's speaking. Is she really is she really that closely aligned to her sister? Is this or is this something that she needs to have for herself? And if she needs to have it, what is it in her that drives that drives that need to be like this missing sister? Um, is it you know sometimes we're driven not by not by uh, a desire that that is going to end well, but but by, by a desire that that could kill us. That's the death drive. Um, and and could it be that Sandra is pushing toward the thing that's most painful, which is to become this absent sister, the thing that she can't quite believe is real, and um, is the thing that she feels the need to to fill in through through herself. So she becomes the filling in of the void, and um, we're never quite sure. What what is happening externally when we hear Sandra speak? Because she's so internal and so poetic, and the poetry and magic of her world takes over when she's speaking. We're not we're never quite sure um, what what we're getting from her and how real it is. Doubling for me is is fascinating because because of that because it's the thing that is going after something that it can't have, and and that intense drive for that thing is what is what um is what moves me what what is it that drives that drives that need to be to be someone else it it creates that ghostly haunting quality in the book too i think and and it, it brings me to the presence of mexico specifically because i feel like you portray mexico i think mexico serves a purpose of doubling in the book the, the some of the issues in the family, but also um, this idea of haunting, both in the family around the doubles, but also the haunting of Mexico's history, because it's you know Mexico City literally being built on a drained lake where all of the Aztec canals used to be, and the rocks of of these Aztec monuments still being present in the city and. Uh, and the way in which the past is sort of haunting the present of of the actual physicality of Mexico City feels very much like it's a twinning with the the family system that's going on. Yeah, uh, where it's twinning with the family system and twinning with itself, right? But Mexico's twinning is twinning with itself. It's the it's the um, the present that that is that is written through the through the architecture of the past the the city center is built upon um the old temples and the very rocks of of the national palace and all of the civic buildings which are, it's very it's a very beautiful center and um 
and this Zocalo, which is, uh, as I say, the second largest public square in the world after Tiananmen Square. It's all built with the very rocks of the temples that were there before. And there's something very magical about about especially that part of Mexico City uh, where the history is... There's really a tripling of the history because we have the colonial and then we we have the modern right there as well. Um, but there's something phantasmagoric about it. It's 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 very it's very ghostly and present. And there's this sense that things are always there. That when the the places hold things and the um and the things can't be disappeared, which is which is one of the. Uh, um, driving forces of the book as well, that even though Julia is sent away, she becomes this uh, driving force for the family. And I think that that's um, something to think about in terms of the, the history of Mexico as well, that even as it's it's it was attempted to, to, to quash it out, it's there and it's bubbling and it's gurgling. And, um, it seems so radically different than the United States' approach to its past in the sense that, I mean, even the, the native mythology is reflected in the flag. It's reflected in the great muralists of Mexico. It's very much present in, in um, the national narrative along with the, what the conquistadors brought. Well, I think that it's the difference between the Catholic and the Protestant. The Protestant is largely an I, I, I. And for the Catholic, the Catholic is a, um, the way that it conquers is by embracing everyone and making everyone a part of the fold. And so I think that um, if you're, if you're, if you're going to conquer through uh, through embracing, then everyone has to feel like they're a part of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which model is is better if you're a conqueror? I don't know. I think that here things were quashed out, and then you know we're quite successful at pretending that history doesn't exist in America. We're we're very good at it. Um, we're very good at, at 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 the here and now, here and now, here and now, all the time. Um, whereas in Mexico, there's still this uh, sense of of layering and um, people are very involved in their in their own history in Mexico and yeah it, it, it does feel quite different the relationship to place and to time there than than it does here um, I think it has something to do with just different different models for occupying and conquering <laughs> yeah I mean if you think about New Orleans and Louisiana yeah. as the one sort of Catholic yeah. bastion of the United States yeah. it has really incorporated its past yeah in a yeah. way the rest of the United yeah. States hasn't yeah yeah I mean that, that, that there's a there's a connection um, clearly yeah yeah yeah. yeah. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Veronica Gonzalez-Pena about her novel, The Sad Passions. Maybe this is a good time to talk about the title, The Sad Passions. What what does that mean? Uh, It comes from Spinoza, and it it comes from um, something that I read in um, Deleuze's book on Spinoza, uh, um, where he's talking about this categorization uh, Spinoza is kind of the, the Thomas Aquinas of the emotions. He categorizes and and, um, and explains the emotions, and and the sad passions are the passions or the emotions which keep you from being active in your own life. So um, so that you're reacting instead of acting, and. Um, and, and that, of course, we all know can get quite complicated where we don't know that we're reacting when we are. We think we're acting, but actually we're 
acting in reaction to what our father did or what our mother did or what something that happened that we don't even remember. Um, and so th- those passions are things like longing or, um, or um, uh, hatred or sadness itself, um, self-abnegation. There's a long list of what these reactionary emotions or passions are that keep us from moving forward um, in the world. I think that in in the in the novel, I, I had someone who's actually a psychoanalyst ask me um, if I felt that there there was any possibility for any of the girls, um, if there was any hope in the book. And I think that, I think that there, that there is, I think that two of the characters in the book, um, may be able to move through these sad passions into something else, into something that feels more kind of active and an active way of being in the world and, and living. And, I refuse to tell her who they were, and I'm going to refuse here as well because I think people should read the book and try and figure it out. But I, I think that um, it's a very dark book. It can be quite scary. Um, but I think that, that there is this this uh, seed of hope in, in, in that idea that, that there may be some motion through these passions. I, I felt that very clearly by the end. Oh, you did? Good. I did. Oh, good. Uh, the shift around uh, Hans Bellmer, who we mm-hmm. talked about, mm-hmm. and then the interpretation of Francesca Woodman at the end, which felt like a very um, hopeful and active uh, ending with with a sense of agency for a couple of the characters. Yeah, at yeah. The end. Yeah, yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, I hope so. I, I hope mean, was, that that's what it turns into for them. Well, uh, maybe <laughs> we could talk a little bit about... Um, Excuse me. About, I have a bit of a cold. <laughs> that's okay. So um, I want to talk a little bit about Francesca Woodman and what she means to the book because she graces the cover of the book with, with an incredibly indelible f- photograph, but also Julia's relationship to Francesca Woodman. And it's, it's the perfect photographer for the book, both around um, the fact that she uses a doppelganger herself. Her best friend is often the, her, a stand-in for herself in her, in her photography, that she's creating these spectral ghostly images of women. Um, but it, it feels like Julia really comes around to seeing her photographs as haunting as they are to be somewhat hopeful herself, which made me feel hopeful for, for Julia, or at least they felt active, like in comparison to the dismembering uh, dolls of Hans Belmer. This felt like a, the the flip side, like it felt like taking the agency back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very different um, when, a, when a woman acts upon her own body than when a man a- acts upon a woman's body, right? If it were a woman making those Hans Belmer dolls, I would feel very differently about them. Um, uh, I... I it's remarkable when you when you write anything, um, even a short piece, but certainly when you write a novel, something that takes years to do, when things seem to come together, where it seems almost as if things are being given to you as a gift, or as if they were the novel was always intended to be exactly in this way. And it was in in the moment that I decided to use images that as I was looking through images, it was, it was remarkable how closely, um, because the book was already written, how closely some of the images that I decided to use fit the narrative. Um, there's that one image of, uh, Francesca Woodman and 
two other girls, and then the spectral missing image, um, which is in the book. And you'll have to get the book and look at that image um, if you if you don't have it. But that it it was almost as if that image had been made for for the novel. It was really uh, phenomenal. Um, I think that. I think you've said a lot of, 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 of what the feeling is around Francesca Woodman already, which is that um, she there is such absence and desire and longing, and um, they're incredibly moving and uh, melancholic. Uh, even when they're being playful, the images are incredibly melancholic. And um, without the, the kind of sappiness of a lot of really young, young art, you know, uh, there's definitely none of, there's that. none of that, which is, which is incredible because she, you know, these were, a lot of them were student photographs and there's none of that in her work, which is just remarkable given, given her age and, 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 and where she was, um, in terms of her career and discovering herself, it's just kind of remarkable. But I think that that for the book, that sense of absence, even in you know in the cover, there's there's often furniture which suggests the presence of someone that's not there, or there's these spectral um, images which are these double exposures, or there's a lot of stuff that happens in graveyards and a lot of uh, the doubling of and insertion of other people as herself and. Um, it's like that the, her work is kind of circling around the book or that the book is circling around her work, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. And and Julia does a, a nice read of her work, I believe. Yeah, she really does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well back to the title for a minute. And, and you're talking about the sad passions, the, the passions that um, are reactive passions that weaken us rather than empower us. Um, I think Deleuze was saying that... that those passions are used by despots and priests to control the people following them, essentially. But in this book, it feels like the sad passions are, are coming almost from, in, instead of some sort of totalitarian system, but from the absence of, of any sort of rules. Like the absence of parenting feels like is what is bringing out the sad passions in, in this book. And I wonder how if that feels right to you. Well, I, I don't think the sad passions come some come so much come from a kind of despotic rule. I think that we all have them in ourselves and the cape, the, um, there's, a, a, a way in which we can all go to that place and that they get utilized by, by despots. And I think that here, um, those things are there and they're, and they're there strongly because of a lack of any centering. There's no centering for these girls. You know, when a parent is completely absent or, or mad, um, which maybe is even worse than absent because it's, it's, uh, it's, um, erratic. Uh, um, there's, there's nothing uh, to center the girls. There's nothing, there's no kind of guiding principle for, for um, finding a different way of, of moving through the world or um, they're always going to be in reaction to the lack. You know, there's a, a huge empty hole in the middle. Mm-hmm. So I guess maybe that's our, our initial absence, right? The, the absence of the mother. And they're always going to be in reaction to that lack. How how can they write themselves in reaction to something that's missing? Um, and well, when you step back and look at the at the family history yeah. as we that we get more of near the end of the book, yeah. we see a lot of uh, people in the family who have artistic impulses that yeah. are not that they're not able to fulfill yeah. for one reason yeah. or another. We have Uncle Felix, and yeah. then we have Claudia herself, the mother, both wanting to be artists yeah. and either not being encouraged or for whatever 
reason, the circumstances weren't um, conducive. And I'm wondering if the two people who feel like the artists who who, are, who fulfill themselves as artistic temperaments in the book are the are Julia and Sandra. Yeah. I mean, Julia l- literally becoming an artist, but Sandra has this sort of artistic, uh, synesthetic view of the world. It feels like to me, yeah. and I wondered if that was because they were the ones that could both step outside of the family. They're literally, they go, they're in Mexico and in other places. So they, they're able to cultivate this observer mind to the system. Yeah. And, 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 you know, similarly, Julia, Julia is, um, able to imagine her father's life. Like she has the capacity to step into another consciousness and imagine it, which feels like it's because she's not fully there. I mean, she's there and not there in the family. And so right. maybe that was, uh, I wonder if that space is what's allowing these two women, contrary to Claudia, who has never, never had that space, yeah. could actually fulfill their, their artistic impulses. Yeah. And, and I guess that I was going to kind of mention that earlier when we were talking about Francesca Woodman, that, um, that one of the ways that you can, that you become active is through, is through taking whatever shit you've been handed and turning it into something, you know, the ability to take to take things and then turn them into art. That's a very active process. That that I think is is what I think we're answering the question of who these two characters are. But I think that that is the thing that offers these these uh, two characters uh, a way out. And maybe it's as you say, they were out to begin with anyway. There is there is uh, this sense in which artists are outsiders and and have to be outsiders. That in order to view, you have to be outside enough to view. And 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 that of course is like the 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 pain of being an artist, right? You always feel on the fringes of things and maybe not, not quite in the, in the, in the center if we're talking in those ways. Um, but it also gives you the space within which to create and you have to be able to take chances, um, in order to be, to be an artist. There has to be, you have to be distant enough that, that you will take chances that other people won't take out of fear or, um, well, fear. I mean, that's the big one, right? Why, why would you not do things? It's, it would be fear. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the influences or inspirations that you felt played a role in, in the sad passions coming to being? Uh, in terms of p- books and people that I read? or well, It could be books. I know that you do artist-writer collaborations, and this book is, is both visual and text. So it, it wouldn't necessarily have to be books. But I, I was curious if you, as you were you were creating the sad passions if you were also going places for for um inspiration or or tapping into other other artistic work as as a source a couple of years ago um i I was reading Eileen Miles's book Inferno, and and there's this one section in that book where she talks about being. I think it's in um, Pennsylvania, where she's staying at someone's house, and she talks about getting up in the morning and going for a run with her dog, and then coming home and write. And like that was an incredibly productive time for her, and it's like one of her happiest, most productive periods. And at that point, I thought, oh my god, because I run. And I thought running can be part of my process. Like this is a part of what I do. And I really made it a part of my process. And then I thought, well, everything is a part of my process. Like it wasn't that same day that I thought that, but over time I thought everything that I do is a part of my process. So I do see a lot of art and I, and I see a lot of film. 
and I read um, like we all do. And I think everything um, that I'm doing as I'm working on a book ends up informing uh, what 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 I end up doing. Now there are very um, there are people that I go back to again and again and again. And every time I start a new piece, I go back to HD's The Gift, and I read Virginia Woolf a lot, and I read Henry James a lot. And um, Jean Rhys, uh, especially Wide Sargasso Sea, the, the, just the rhythm of the language in that. When I decided to put images in the book, I thought, why only Sebald? Why only him? Why is he the only one that's allowed to do that? And and so I um, I asked my publisher, I asked uh, the people at Semiotext, and they said yes. And that seemed very important to me in terms of this book. And, um, it really does add a lot to the book. Yeah, to have the images. There. Yeah, imagine it without the images. It would be it would be a different book. Yeah, um, and, and of course, I I love his 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 work. I I don't I couldn't even begin to talk about the different things that I've seen in the last couple of years or in the years that I was working on the book. But all of it, my conversations with people, you know, my conversations certainly with the people at Semiotext, dinners when I lived in LA, I would have a lot of dinners and. Um, I, I I think of you know my friendships are like collaborations. It's all it's all and that's you know this Rocky Point project, which is a, 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 a collab, these artistic collaborations that I put together and that I sometimes um, am involved in as an artist as well. Um, it's all it's all part of that that process for me. Just thinking of all of these friendships and all of these different people as a part of of, of what it is to be an artist. Yeah. Can you talk about any new projects, or do you have a sense of what your next book endeavor might be? Well, I just finished this thing for um, the Semiotext is going to be in the Whitney Biennial, and I just finished. They've asked uh, 20, 20 some of their artists to write books for them, and so I just finished a book on uh, the Mexican drug war for them, and I, I just handed it in last week, and I'm working on a film right now with... Uh, Michael Silverblatt and Chris Kraus and Hedy Colty and a few other people as actors in the film. That um, my collaborations have grown into film, and that's what I'm doing now. So I'm making these films uh, with all of these different people who are in my life as actors in them, and so that's what I'm working on right now. It'll be screened at the LA Art Fair in February, so I'm in a rush to do that, and I'm I'm working on a couple of short stories right now. I used to write short stories and I haven't done that in a while. So I'm working on a couple of short stories and I have an idea for a novel, um, which is kind of loosely based on, uh, Alice in the cities that Vim Vendor's film. Um, so, uh, I, I have, I have an idea and I haven't started writing it. But I, I don't, I don't usually have an idea. I usually just start writing and then, and then it's a scary process, but here I have an idea. So yeah, I'm excited actually. It's a different way of working. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on between the covers today, Veronica. Thank you, David. This was great. We've been talking today with Veronica Gonzalez-Pena, the author of The Sad Passions from Semiotext. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naming, your host, and I'll be back again next month with an interview with Gary Steingart about his new memoir, Little Failure. <laughs>